However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? (laughs) Uh, Well, George Clooney, of course. (laughs) Who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you have had a great week so far. Uh, Sad news, though, this week with the passing of Harley Race. Harley, known as not only one of the greatest performers in the ring and one of the most respected professional wrestlers ever, uh, he was also known to be one of the toughest, right up there with Meng, uh, or Haku to many of us. I never got the chance to work with Harley, but I know those who did believe he was among the greatest of all time. And our best to Harley's family and all those who love the man. Uh, We're coming off an episode with Savio Vega, and if you know anything about the history of professional wrestling during the Territories era, you know uh, just what an impact professional wrestling in Puerto Rico had on the business. Uh, Back during that time, at some point, if you were coming up or even if you were a big name, you spent time in Puerto Rico, and there were a few territories where the fans were more passionate about their wrestling, I mean, to the point where it was dangerous. You've heard all the stories Savio Vega saw it all, and he is truly a legend in Puerto Rico. And during that episode, he shared some great stories, and it was awesome to see just how excited he he still is about his days in professional wrestling, um, just as much as he was back then. And I want to thank Juan Rivera, uh, also known as Savio Vega, for coming on PTSM. I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Savio. I want to give a big shout out to all of our Patreon members who participated in the uh, shooting the segment for the upcoming documentary on Rowdy Roddy Piper. We've been talking about this for weeks, and I want to thank you all for your great submissions. Uh, so many were, were just awesome. Unfortunately, we couldn't use all of them, but the folks who came on were tremendous. It was really, it was great. Thank you all again. We had a lot of fun, and the documentary is going to be coming out the first of the year, I'm told. I wish I could share more details, but it will be appearing on a major cable network. And I promise I will share more information as we get closer to the release date. Um, That opportunity is one of the many perks that come along with membership with uh, patreon.com slash primetimemooney. I'd love to have you join us. Love to have you with us. And uh, I will be making some announcements about some great changes and additions we will be making to our membership and uh, I'll also have another announcement for you. That's going to happen on the other side of my conversation today on Primetime. But, you know, with that, let's get to our guest this week. Uh, when you hear the name Jarrett, uh, for most of our listeners, you think of uh, T Jeff Jarrett. 
Well, Jeff has certainly accomplished a great deal in his career in professional wrestling, but there's another Jarrett who may not have the list of accomplishments in the ring, like his son, but Jerry Jarrett is someone who has had an incredible impact on the industry and is responsible for many innovations uh, to sports entertainment, as we call it now, that are still being used today. So, you know, let's get to my conversation with a legend in the business, Jerry Jarrett. Well, my guest this week has been involved in the business of professional wrestling his entire life. Uh, and I mean that. I mean, indirectly, he was helping to sell tickets uh, for wrestling at the age of three. <laughs> he is also one of the true innovators of the entertainment and showmanship that has become so much a part of professional wrestling uh, all the way till today, as well as a great ambassador for the industry over the years. Welcome, Jerry Jarrett. Jarrett, thank you. Uh, Jerry, thank you for coming on to uh, Primetime with Sean Mooney. Yes, well, I, I'm flattered that you asked me, Sean. I said before we started the show, uh, we've just missed each other's careers yeah. intersecting a number of times. Uh, I got to WWE probably six months after you left. Yeah, it, it's, it is pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, we were I was very close. I left the 93. You came uh, to... Uh, uh, at least work in Connecticut. I know you'd been in touch with Vince over the years before that, but you actually were in Connecticut, and uh, we'll get into that. But I wanted to uh, really kind of go back and uh, trace your career because, like I said, uh, it's been a part of your life, I mean, since you were a very, very small child. So uh, you've really not known anything else in your life. Well, uh, that, that's partially true. Yeah. Um, you know, I... I was promoting wrestling while I was in high school. Yeah. Uh, but then I went to college and had a little sabbatical from it. And then when I graduated, I made bicycles for Murray Ohio Manufacturing Company for about four years. Yeah. And well, and, and I know there's a lesson in there, too, because I think that could have been something that uh, you know you could have done your entire life. I think you were offered a vice presidency, and you decided... That wasn't what you wanted to do, but uh, it's amazing how, how fate steps in. But you even knew then that you wanted to control your own destiny. I guess that's the way the best way to say it. Yeah, yeah. I told Bill Hannon, who was the president, and he had just demoted all of the executives that his daddy put in place. Yeah. And I, I said, Bill, I'm I'm not made emotionally to when your son takes over to, to be put out to pasture. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do. I may end up selling pencils on fourth and church, <laughs> but I'm going to find something else to do. And he thought I was crazy, you know, well, because it offered the position I was offered director of purchasing at, uh, 26 years old was wow. something most people wouldn't have turned down. Well, uh, but I, I think you had a little more confidence in yourself that you would not end up selling pencils. I mean, uh, given the fact that you were promoting uh, wrestling events at 14. And that, to me, is pretty amazing. Did you just have an understanding of the business early on? Uh, no, no, I really didn't. I, I, was, a, <laughs> I was a big fan. Yeah, but, right. uh, you know, they called me in and said, you, now that you've got your driver's license, it was a hardship license. 
why don't you run some of the spot shows? And I said, what do you mean run them? And he said, promote them. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is go put out window cards and sell tickets and rent a building and you're in business. So I really, and literally, that's how simple it was. Um, I didn't do any of the booking or any of the matchmaking. As a matter of fact, I wasn't smart to the business. But um, I was smart enough to know that if you bought the sports editor of the newspaper in the little country town a lunch, he'd give you a good (laughs) write-up. Well, uh, you understood promotions. You may not have understood the business, but man, uh, not a lot of people at 14 and uh, a little older than that would would uh, have that understanding that that's what it's all about. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I, I was I was fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> Still humble after all these years. Uh, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, you said at 14, uh, you weren't smart to the business. And, uh, you know, listening to... Uh, an interview, one of the interviews you've done, and you, you mentioned how heartbroken you were when you found out uh, what the you know the real business of wrestling was. Um, but it really got me thinking about it. Uh, first of all, tell us that uh, you know about that the fact that uh, you know you I guess you, you you put it when you believe in something and love something so much you you just think it's got to be that way. Yes, and you know I I cried when my mother smartened me up about Santa Claus. Uh, Yeah, I didn't didn't want to know that she was Santa Claus. Um, And, you know, I I don't know, 8 or 10 or 12 years old. I was a believer a long time. But, um, you know, I'm just, I love, um, I guess I love the romantic poets, when I was in school and, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a romantic life to look forward to the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and, and then the reality of life that very little in it is real. Yeah. to, To me, it's a downer. Yeah. So, you know, I was riding in the, in the backseat of one of the cars, uh, to go check up, in some town that uh, Nick Goulas and Roy Welch were running, and I kind of dozed off. But then when I woke up, they were talking about the business and <laughs> talking about high spots and, uh, you know, how stupid the promoters were and uh, let's, let's have the match and get it over with and get out of this SHIT hole. Mm. And you know, I I, I loved the, the the small towns. I thought that they had character and atmosphere, and but no Santa Claus and no wrestling shoots. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you you said that uh, when you told. Uh... The, the, the promoter, they actually like sent one of the guys away to say, hey, gee, I'm so glad that you told us that he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, giving up matches. He was, <laughs> he oh, was, yeah, well, he I was would throwing come, matches. <laughs> yeah, I would come back and yeah. Roy Welch would call me in the office and say, OK, give me a report. How are the matches? And yeah. 
I said, well, the main event was real good, but I believe those two guys in the first match were faking it. And he said, boy, I will have a talk with them. And, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't see any need to smarten me up. I was counting the tickets and bringing the money home. Yeah, yeah well, kayfabe was uh, very, very strong back then. But, uh, you know, it got me thinking, though, and I don't know if you've ever uh, done any research or, or have had people tell you how this business all happened. Uh, they, you know, it's based on Carnival. Uh, it's, it's theater in a lot of ways, but it's also, you know, there's the athleticism in it. And a lot of amateur wrestlers became professional wrestlers because that was a way for them to make money after uh, they had their wrestling career. end. but I've often wondered why it, it became a work that, because, you know, we have the MMA today and you wonder if, if back then maybe they could have made amateur wrestling, you know, a, you know, a shoot. Have you ever yeah. given that th some thought? Yeah, and, and you know, my son, my youngest son, was uh, a very good amateur wrestler in high school. Mm -hmm. And I just absolutely loved it. Yeah. And all the years that I promoted, uh, I liked the guys that were sh known as shooters. Ali right. Viseri and... and uh, Billy Robertson and Luthez, you know, I, I really admired them. But if you will watch the Olympics, uh, the Olympics, that's the height of amateur wrestling. Yeah. And sometime the stadium is a third full. Yeah. Uh, I would go to, you know, my, high, my son played football and you, You'd have to get there early to get a seat in the stadium, but you could go to the wrestling meets and you could have a dove hunt and not shoot anybody. <laughs> I mean, just nobody yeah. came. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that's the roots of it. Yeah. What, yeah, I, I, I you think what, you're right. What propelled it was that the promoters, when, when most of the people, in the business were shooters and the promoter would try to get one of them to take a fall or, or put his opponent over. Right. If they didn't want to, they would just tell the promoter to go to hell and he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. So oftentimes the, the lesser wrestler would be the one with charisma and could draw the house. So the promoters, and, you know, me at 76, and, and I cut my teeth under Roy Welch, who would be over 100, I guess, if he were alive today. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I talked to him often about it. And he, he, he said that Carl Gotch was one of the reasons oh, yeah. that, the, uh, that the promoters started leaning to the workers rather than the shooters. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense that the promoters, uh, would want somebody that they could handle, uh, or not handle influence. Yeah. And so I took the opposite of approach during my wrestling promotion career 
And I tried to allow the fans to suspend disbelief and and make it as real as it could be without hurting each other. Mm-hmm. And the brawls and the action in and out of the ring and all the crazy stuff we did in the Tennessee Territory, at least it looked real. Yeah. You know, people... People got angry when they found out the concession stand brawl in Tupelo, Mississippi was not real. Bill <laughs> Bill Watts got really angry at me when he found out that Jerry Lawler really didn't hurt. Um, well, Clay, you know, the, the movie star, Taxi. Oh, Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. Yeah, really? Bill Watts <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he ca- he called me to thank me for protecting the business and and having Lawler beat the hell out of Andy Kaufman and send him to the hospital. Yeah, he spent a couple of days in the hospital. He really yeah, consoled. yeah. But Andy yeah. Andy was a believer in kayfabe. Yeah, and and so he went. You know, he wore that neck brace around Hollywood for a month. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that was funny. Bill Watts saw the little clip on national television and he just knew it was real. Yeah. Oh, God, if they pulled it over with him, man, that's, that's, that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you're right though. I mean, it's, it's all about storylines and, and people, uh, you know, and I knew even back in the day when, when, you know, in the eighties that most of the people that the vast majority of people that are in that arena know that that what it is but they want to believe and they want to go for the ride and it's all about storytelling it's all all about the drama and 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 uh, and building these storylines and uh, i think that maybe you know today and it's another discussion it's we've lost some of that but that, that back in those days where you could go months and months and when you had the territories and you had these guys that would come in and you might have an eight month run and then the guy would disappear you know, and then you'd bring them back. And, it, it, you know, that was just uh, uh, storytelling at its best back back in those times. Yes, that was, uh, I call it the glory days of wrestling. Yeah. Because yeah. when a wrestler would come in uh, to the territory to work for us, yeah. I told him, I would tell them, I would sit them down and I would say, you know, when you go to the Rocky movie yeah. and and see the fight scene, wouldn't you really be upset because you're emotionally into it? And when I saw the movie, when it first came out, everybody in the theater stood up and applauded when, when Rocky made his big comeback. Yeah. yeah. And I would, t- I would tell them, if you do something that exposes the business in the ring, it's the same thing as if you took a wide shot during the Rocky movie, the fight mm-hmm. scene, yeah. and saw the cameras and the directors and the lighting people all around the ring, and some some guy sitting in the back hollering, retake, let's shoot that over. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd be terribly angry. Let's uh, let the people that have paid their $5 for our ticket prices then, 
let's let them get their money's worth. And it doesn't matter if logic prevails at the water cooler the next day. Yeah. What matters is that while they are there, they can suspend their disbelief. Yeah. They get away from everything and they go for the ride. I mean, it, it's it's true. Yes. And, and so thank goodness that you decided not to sell bicycles because uh, it brought you back to the business. And um, all this time, I guess you were, uh, when you got back in, uh, acquiring knowledge to the point where you were still pretty young when you started the uh the CWA, the Continental Wrestling Association. And how did that, though, all come about where, where you went into business? Uh, well, I worked for Nick Goulis and Roy Welch to start right. out with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and my mother started out as a ticket seller on Tuesday night at the Hippodrome. Mm-hmm. But she was a sharp lady and ended up being the bookkeeper for the wrestling office. So when I, when I came into it, I was, I had a pretty much open door policy or chance to promote Mm -hmm. my mother objected as strong as you can object. She threatened to quit if they let me start wrestling and, and she lined it up with an old shooter named Sailor Miranda beat me up for three months to dissuade me from getting in the wrestling business. Mm -hmm. But I had Tojo whispering in my ear and saying, you can take it. The real business is not like that, Jerry. So Tojo was teaching me the work and sailor was beating me up. And it, it went from there to finally sailor, probably lied to him, to my mother, and told her, well, you don't have to worry about anybody roughing Jerry up. He can take care of himself. I think Sailor really felt sorry for me because he (laughs) put put me over a lot more than I deserved. But um, then, you know, I had my opportunity to book, and I just started out. I brought back my heroes, Don and Al Green and Jackie Fargo, and teamed with Tojo and turned him babyface. And it seemed like everything we did in the early days uh, worked. And we ended up going from Ellis Auditorium, a small building downtown Memphis, to the Mid South Coliseum that seats 10,400. And and we had a phenomenal 20-year run. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And uh, getting into the ring, though, I mean, was that something, I, I think originally you did it because you're going to get uh, some extra money to do yeah. it. But was it something, though, that you, you wanted to do, uh, knowing and loving the business, or did it just kind of uh, happen, well, like I said, for a few extra bucks, and maybe you thought you'd learn uh, a little bit more about the business? Uh no, Tojo encouraged me. They back in those days they paid the referee five ten or a big house. They gave him fifteen dollars, uh-huh. and and the opening match would make forty or fifty. And so it just made sense that if I'm going to make the three hundred mile trip, 
Yeah. It's a lot better to make forty or fifty dollars than it is ten or fifteen. Yeah. And uh, of course, then you know when things started clicking, my involvement in the ring helped propel me as a promoter. Right. And uh, you know, I I quit wrestling as soon as I could. Celebrity. Some people live off of it. Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. They all thrive on celebrity. It was always, from the very beginning, a big nuisance to me. Because I think I'm basically an introverted person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as soon as I felt like I had the talent, I quit, you know, the for me just to promote that's what i did yeah but uh, uh were you doing it though at the same time were you still involved oh yeah i was yeah. wrestling yeah. the whole time wow and uh but it but did you enjoy uh, besides you said the fame part of it was something that you could have cared less about but what about uh actually being in the ring and i know that uh, you always considered yourself not a big man but right uh right you was that something though that you did that you look back on and you really uh, look back at it fondly? Yeah, I I loved it because being small, yeah. I could uh, I could sell and and really get the crowd worked up. And of course, the goal of the promoter is to accomplish that. So I could assist in my own end, uh, and so I spent a career. Um, making the heels look very, very, very mean mm-hmm. and callous. And, uh, but, you know, I, w- I would see older guys wrestle and, and I would think I hate it that they have to go to this length to make a living. And so as soon as I didn't think I was a cute little guy again, a boy toy, I certainly quit. <laughs> yeah, that could uh, take its toll for sure. Uh, you mentioned Jerry Lawler. I know I know he's somebody that uh, was I- involved in your life, I mean, uh, forever. I mean, it seems like from very early on. How did that relationship first begin? Because uh, he wasn't, I think when you met him, he wasn't a wrestler at the time. No, no, he he was a kid, and he uh-huh. he drew banners he was a talented artist and he and he worked for jackie fargo at a radio station there in in uh memphis Uh and so jackie asked me one day would i allow him to show some of his art pictures of the wrestlers that he'd drawn and i said sure and then he did that, and then lo and behold, two or three months later, Jackie came to me and he said, uh, will, you, will you give him a tryout on TV? And I said, sure again. Mm-hmm. And from Jerry's first match, you could see that he was very, very talented and, and had charisma with yeah, the Had that fans. presence, yeah. So... You know, the story went from there. He uh, 
you know, I, I promoted him as our number one guy, and he he carried the ball well. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he had quite certainly has had quite a career. Um, you mentioned working with Nick Goulas and uh, Roy Welch, and this is that was a uh, a union for quite a bit of time. And then I think what uh, was it Welch? I don't know if he became ill or he got out of the business, and that allowed you to uh, get a piece of it. How did that all happen? Because yeah. I want to build up to the point to where you got your own uh, your your own promotion for the first time, and yeah. I knew Lawler yeah. was involved in that. But prior to that, uh, yeah, what I'll, was your I'll, business I'll, I'll try to make it very very brief. Yeah. Roy Welch would talk to me about what I thought of the matches and what I would do next week because he'd give me a ride, and that three and a half hour ride to Memphis, sometime four hours, had mm-hmm. a gave us a lot of talking time. Yeah. So he liked my ideas and and let me start booking. So I built a pretty good reputation, and Jim Barnett uh, flew from Australia to Hendersonville, and the proverbial made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, if you'll come to Atlanta, I bought it. We're in a war with the Gunkles, and the only way I can win that war is to outdraw her at the box office. Uh And he said, do you think your Memphis formula will work? I said, well, Mr. Barnett, it'll work anywhere. And he's, but I don't want to go anywhere. I'm at home, and I'm making a good living. Uh And he said, my boy, I will. Pay you whatever you want. Well, how do you turn that down? Yeah. So I said, well, what I want is 500 a day. A, a day then? Wow. A day. And he said, no problem. <laughs> if you don't draw me sellouts, uh-huh. I will fire you. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know. I'm going to make several thousand dollars just while he gets back from Australia. (laughs) Whatever happens. Yeah. But everything worked. Luthez helped me. He allowed Terry Garvin, who played the effeminate role to slap him in the ring. Uh And, you know, everybody helped. Johnny Walker busted his butt when I dressed him up as wrestling too. Um, everything worked and, uh, we were able to pack the city auditorium consistently. And I went to Jim and I said, why don't we go to the Omni? We can't get all the people in. So that's where wrestling started at the Omni. Wow. That's amazing. And you mentioned Australia and it's kind of a sidetrack here, but a lot of people don't realize how big, uh, I guess you'd call it a territory. It was a vast territory that, uh, you know, a lot of that was like a part of, uh, you know, a wrestler's travels that, uh, that, uh, Burnett really, uh, had quite a, a business going on over there. Oh yeah. Very good. But he just, yeah. you know, Jim is the kind of guy that likes the bright lights of New York or Las Vegas more than he does the 
outback of Australia. So he wanted to get back here, and Lester Welch wanted to for sure get away from Ann Guckle. So that opened him up an opportunity to buy the territory at a very, very cheap price. So you made you made a lot of money though, and in, in, uh, it sounds like it went really well. But what what brought you back home? Oh, I've got off my story. Yeah. The, oh, well, if if you have more to say about the Australia, I'd no, no, that. I mean I got off with my yeah. other story yeah. to your first question. Yeah, yeah. I do that I, a lot. How, I get off the track. So <laughs> how how I got a uh, percentage. Nick and Roy called and said, if you'll come back home, we will give you 10% of the whole territory. Uh. And so uh, I knew that I didn't know what it was wrong right then, but I knew when I left, 10% would be a lot more than 500 a day that I was making for Barnett. So I gave Jim my notice and and uh, he and I remained friends till his death. Uh, but I went back, and then Roy got sick, and uh, Nick offered to sell me an additional 40% of, you know, where I'd have Roy's interest for $50,000. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a lot of money back in that day, but I had made a lot of money, so... I made the deal. I, it turned out that I thought I was buying 50%. I was really just buying an option on the 40%. And so that led to our breakup, yeah. me and Nick Goulas. And, uh, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. I yeah. went home and cried thinking my world had come to an end when he and I had our falling out. I mean, literally cried. Yeah, why, why would he do that, though? I mean, after you'd been around uh, he, him he, and, and... He loved uh, his son too much. Uh, his son was not particularly gifted as an athlete. Uh, and and George wanted to come to Memphis where all the sellouts were happening. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't going to have it because I knew what would happen. And um, so anyway, yeah, we but split. He, screwed, he screwed you in that deal, though. I mean, it wasn't it written up where I mean that that, that wasn't a, a fair deal. So it looked like something that he had planned. I oh mean, yeah, that, uh, he and yeah. he and his lawyer, yeah. because of my naivety, uh. he and his lawyer set it up where I was buying an option. And, and, you know, I was naive. I I read the contract, but you know how all the fine print and you skim over it. And, and I trusted. Yeah, I mean, you've been yeah. with them for years and years and years. Yes. And uh, anyway, uh, it really turned out to be the blessing of my life. Yeah. Because it gave me a chance to go in business for myself. And accumulate some wealth. Yeah, well, absolutely. And then, uh, and we mentioned with the the CWA. And so, how did that uh, form? Because I know that uh, Lawler would be involved. Uh, I know your mom was uh, still a big part of it. Uh, you know, how did that uh, 
all come together that you were able to you know put that that deal together and put together a very very sec- successful promotion. Well, when this is nineteen seventy seven, right? Yes, when I broke away from Nick, I needed to give Lawler an incentive because I had everything built around him. So I gave him 10%. Uh From the time I opened up Louisville, Evansville, and Lexington, Kentucky, Uh I gave my mother 25% of that, of each town, the promotion. So uh, it ended up, Jerry had 10% of the whole territory. My mother had... 25% 25% of three towns, mm-hmm. the th- three of the major towns, e- except she didn't have any part of Memphis. And, uh, you know, it stayed that way. Yeah. But, uh, Jerry, what do you think it was, though, about the way you, I guess, booked uh, or, or, or put these promotions together? Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, back then, there were a lot of promotions that didn't go anywhere. And I know that, uh, you know, Bill Watts struggled at times. Uh, the uh, Von Erichs were had, uh, you know, I think they eventually went bankrupt. W- what was it you think that uh, you were able to put together such successful promotions? You know, since I've been away from the business, I've had time to reflect. Yeah. If you asked me that 30 years ago, I would have said, I don't know. I had some basic beliefs. And so when a wrestler would come in, I would have the talk about allow the fans to suspend this belief. If you only know how to do an arm drag or a wrist lock, then just do that. Don't think you have to make a hundred moves. And then, you know, I know you watch television and, uh, but all these acrobatic things that you see, they expose the business. So I think that was a principle that really, really made us different. The other thing was I would set everybody down and I would say, now I'm not preaching to you, mm-hmm. but I want you to just think about this. Your fingerprint that God stamped on you from the instant you were conceived is the only fingerprint exactly like it in the entire world, not just the United States, in the entire world. You're a very unique person. And if you try to be gorgeous, I told Terry Garvin this. I said, I love it that you want to do the flamboyant gimmick. Mm. And I will help you and I'll push you. But the first time you try to act like gorgeous George instead of Terry Garvin, uh, it'll be over Mm. because you won't draw any money. I told Jim Cornette, Jim, don't try to be like Bobby Heenan. You are unique unto yourself. Um, So everybody that worked for me, I I was tutoring them to be themselves and to be realistic. 
And uh, I, I think compelling storylines and putting these unique individuals, you know, I, I, I wish Vince would see that, you know, he's having trouble getting somebody with charisma mm-hmm. out of his current stable. Well, a, a guy sitting down memorizing a script doesn't have any chance of projecting his uniqueness that God gave him, his, yeah. his personality, his, and, and therefore project and be a charismatic character. It's all, it's like they're rubber stamped and you, that just won't work. Well, and you said the word unique. You got to be unique, and you got to be true to yourself with that. And and we saw that we've seen that over and over again. When when people find that, that's when that magic happens. And and we'll talk yeah. about some of those stars. But I think also that was was uh, great about the way you looked at the business is it was you know the the old school where you know there would like you said they go in there and the storylines were stale and they would just keep redoing them and they would say let's do this one. You're always looking at something different. And, uh, you know, for example, with, you know, presentations, you were among the, the, the first that used music, which today people go, what? You know, but nobody used music on entrances or, or, light, or lights or, you know, flashing lights and that kind of thing. Were you always looking for different things to, you know, to, uh, to, to try to see how audience would react to it? Was that, uh, you know, you use faster guys that, you know, young guys that weren't these giant, uh, you know, behemoths? Uh, quick moving in the ring. It was something that people weren't used to seeing. Were you always kind of looking for something different? Oh, absolutely. I, my attention span is is not very long. Uh-huh. And so I would sit and watch a match. And if I got bored with it myself, I, I assumed that the fans were not really into it. So I would I would adapt and I would tell the wrestlers you know move speed it up. Uh, now, uh, uh, the Rock and Roll Express took to it a hundred percent. Billy Robertson didn't take to it a hundred percent, and I really liked Billy and and loved his work and his shootability. Yeah. But I could never get Billy to speed it up a notch. And uh, Billy would say that it's his size. And then along comes Bam Bam Bigelow that's bigger than Billy Robertson. And and Bam Bam could go 90 miles an hour. Right. So, you know, we, we wanted a faster pace. We wanted the people to be individualistic. Uh, I watched my children who were fascinated to the point of getting in trouble with me, not coming to dinner with MTV. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just tried to copy the fast pace clips that were MTV in the early mm-hmm. days. So, so do you feel, do you feel that you always had that ability to read what, um, your audience wanted, uh, in a sense, you know, with the psychology of it, like you said, you could watch a match and go, I don't think they're going to like this, or 
you know, the having the understanding that when you'd have, you know, you went after younger talent who would be these good looking guys, you know, heart throbs, but you also wanted them to be you know, masculine because uh, you wanted the girls to bring their boyfriends. And, right. and so did you feel like you kind of always had that gift, I guess is what you'd call it. Um, well, you know, um, we're getting into my spirituality. <laughs> I, I, yes, I think God gives everybody certain talents. And I can't sing happy birthday and stay in tune. If, oh. if we're having a birthday party, my wife will nudge me to not <laughs> sing very loud. But yeah. a lot of it, Sean, is just common sense. Uh-huh. I knew that I was not really the boss in the wrestling business. I knew that the fans that bought the tickets were the boss. And uh-huh. so I would set in the back of the Louisville Gardens or the Mid-South Coliseum or the Evansville Coliseum, Rough Arena. It was wonderful because I could sit up and the fans didn't even know I was there. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to them and they would tell me which wrestlers they hated and wanted to get beat up and which wrestlers they loved and felt sorry for. And boy, if you watch the matches and don't listen to them, you're, you're soon to be out of business. Uh, I had a, a, a little pilot of Olympus wrestling and it was up in not far from Philadelphia. So we had a lot of ECW fans and they started chanting you missed the high spot. You missed the high spot. You suck. That's a phony punch. And so I went to the wrestlers afterwards and I said, why didn't you just pick up a chair and one of you bust the other one over the head? They were telling you that your match was phony and not real. So, you know, it's it's that philosophy. I love amateur wrestling uh, because it's real, and I love professional wrestling when it looks real. Yeah. Well, and you and you, you talk about you say it's common sense though, but if if everybody could do it, they they, <laughs> they would have been successful in the business. And you saw them come and go. And uh, you know, before we we talk more about uh, you know the WWF, the WWE. There was this vast, uh, you know, the land of, of territories that uh, that were across the United States, Canada, uh, other places around the world that people respected. It would, and uh, NWA was a big part of this alliance. But um, was that really a, a great time for wrestling or was it inevitable that it would become what it did with, uh, you know, what we see today is the WWE and then we've got other independents and some that are emerging, but was that in your mind, uh, you know, the greatest period of time or, or not? No, they, Oh, I think, yes. I think during that run, uh, wrestling was as hot and had such appeal that it's never had since. 
but I I felt like, you know, I dropped out of the NWA. Mm. And the reason I left is I would talk to Fritz von Erich and I'd talk to Jim Crockett Sr. And I talked to Vince McMahon Sr. And, you know, Tunney up in Canada and uh, Roy Shire out on the West Coast. I talked to all of them and I would say, you know, I am the baby in this business. And I don't want for all of y'all to be gone and me being the last man standing. Why don't you bring people in that are younger and teach them, share your wisdom and knowledge with them? Yeah. And they swatted me off like a fly. Yeah. And, and so what happened was, uh, the best way to sum it up, there was a bunch of us going to try to compete with Vince. Eddie Einhorn was behind it. So we yeah. met. We met the baseball. At, the baseball uh Yes, yeah, and and he he had some capital, so we met up in Chicago, and Vince McMahon heard about the meeting, and he called Eddie, and Eddie asked us, should I take his call? And yes, so we came back, and he said, Vince McMahon was just giving me some friendly advice, and he said I was wasting my time. He said, the people in that room all think they are the smartest people in the world. And you won't be able to get a census if you try to order pizza for lunch. (laughs) And you know what? He was 100% right. This group, um, you know, they, they... chose to let me produce the TV in Memphis and and, uh, Louisville and we put it on in New York for eight weeks and we ran a show in the Meadowlands that was just short of a complete sellout Mm. and that night Bill Watts called me before the event and said "I, I hear it's a almost a sellout. And I said, yeah, it is Bill. He said, well, I'm pulling out of the group. Mm. I want to do my own thing. And Jim Crockett Jr. came to me at the event and said, uh, do whatever you want to, but I'm leaving. Mm. And then Vern Gagne was in charge of the box office and he took the money and nobody ever saw a penny of it. <laughs> yeah. So in so, a sense, their, their egos did them in. And, and did you know then that this was the demise oh, of, oh, of yeah. the territories? Yes. Yes. I knew that it was coming to an end. Oh, wow. And, and I know you had great respect for, uh, uh Vince senior and, yes. um, but you developed quite a relationship with with, with Vince uh, McMahon Jr. Um, that that uh, lasted for you know it lasted many many years, and I know you were really close. So how did that relationship develop? And I'm assuming it was not too far off from that time. Yeah, uh, Vince Senior called me one night, 
I mean, we had a lot of conversations, but usually it was about business. But he called me one night, and he never called at night. He called during the daytime in my office. Mm-hmm. And he called me late one night, and he said, Jerry, every conversation you, we have, you say, if there's anything I can do for you, Vince, to repay you, because Vince was Vince and Eddie Graham are the two that talked the alliance into letting me have an NWA membership. And they never do that before. Wow. You know, they protected the old guard, but they, uh, they let me, they let me be the NWA representative. And then after that, they asked, do you care if Vince, I mean, if Nick Goulas is also an NWA? I said, not at all. Mm. You know, the best promotion will survive. So, Vince Sr., I felt I owed him beyond our friendship. Yeah. And so I would say, Vince, if there's anything I can do, you're in New York, you've got the talent in the big towns, but if you if you ever just need freshening up or some job men or anything, please tell me. So then he calls me that night and he says, Jerry, I am very, very sick and and I won't be around long. Mm. And he said, my boy wants to own the world and, and he wants to take this territory and expand it all over the U.S. and then all over the world. And he said, I don't know if he will make it or not. But he said, the thing that I do know is there'll come in his life when he desperately needs a real friend. And I said, Vince, I can't foresee him ever calling me. But if he does, I'll be there. Huh. And and Vince, I, he died within a couple of weeks of that call. So, you know, that was in the back of my mind, and I meant it when I said it, but I never in a hundred years thought Vince would call. And one huh. day, one Sunday, he called, and he said, I just need somebody to talk to, Jerry. I, it's hard for me to talk to the people that work for me. Uh-huh. And the conversations were so long and so intense of a personal nature. He would tell me everything about his life, and I'd tell him everything about mine. Uh-huh. And so much so that my wife, when we go to a dinner party, somebody would say, what are you doing Friday? And she'd go, well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Vince Day, Monday, Tuesday. And they would laugh and say, what is Vince Day? Oh, Jerry spends four hours talking to this promoter in New York. Hmm. And what what year was this, uh, Jerry? I just want to get a a, a perspective of where Vince was on his journey. I'm going to guess it was your last year, 93. Okay. Uh And, uh, um, so, um, 
Vince, those were troubled Vince, times. Oh yeah, Vince, yeah. and he was under terrific pressure. Yeah, yeah. And so we would talk about, um, you know, Pat Patterson has his problems, mm-hmm. and so Vince had to let him go home because mm-hmm. of some referee accusation. I don't know if it's true or not. Never asked Pat about it, mm-hmm. but. Then he had three women that had lawsuits about sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Then he had the press in New York that was just absolutely vicious. And the bad, between the bad press and the stress on Vince, the territory was at an all time low. Mm -hmm. And finally he said, uh, I know I'm asking a lot because I've been your competitor, but I have some great people. Pat Patterson's a great finish man. J.J. Dillon is great at talent relations. I've got the best treasurer. Uh, Everything is working. But if I have to, and Linda is the glue that holds this company together. Yeah. But Linda doesn't know anything about the wrestling business, Jerry. The booking, the the day-to-day creative part. But I don't have anybody that if I have to go to jail can hold it all together. Hmm. Would you consider coming up and just taking a look at it? And I said... Vince, if you would come to see me here in Tennessee, I live in a huge house in the middle of 107 acres. I've got horses, chickens. I've got 100 head of cattle. You know, and then I'm making a pretty good living. And he said, well, I understand it if you can. And uh, that's... Sunday conversation ended and, and, you know, then my memory jolted me of Vince Sr. and my promise. So I picked up the phone and called him back and I said, yeah, send me a plane ticket and I'll come up and look. So, you know, that was the start of it. He was, in a sense, asking you to to run the business if he was going to go to prison? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he had a big meeting. I think J.J. Dillon's the only one I know that's talked about it. I saw a podcast or read it in a book or something. Vince had a meeting in the cafeteria and had all the chairs set up, and he had a big table up at the head and uh, just three chairs, and Vince was in the one on the right, and he motioned me to sit down in the middle, and Linda was on the other side. And he told the people, if Jerry comes in your office, it's the same thing as me walking in. Uh, then he told them a little bit about my background, and, and he said, uh, we never know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that was the end of the meeting. I I didn't understand. He made a big deal out of just a five-minute 
conversation. Hmm. I didn't talk. And, uh, but anyway, I, I really like Vince. I, I think Linda is one of the smartest women. I, I have her on a level with my mother as far as intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. She really is one smart lady. That's for sure. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, I prayed that he would get exonerated. Jerry McDivitt, the attorney, said, no, you can't beat the government. We're mm. going to fight as hard as we can, but get ready. Mm. You're going to have a lot on your shoulders. Yeah. So I prayed, and then when Vince walked out on those steps that was on television, we were all glued to it. And they said he was exonerated. Mm -hmm. I started crying and I went to my apartment there in Stanford and gave my furniture to the concierge guy. And I grabbed a few personal things and put them in my car. And so I love you, Vince, but I'm going home. <laughs> Uh, what about that time, though, you did spend up there with, with Pat and Bruce and the, the triumvirate, as I used to uh, kind of refer to it? Uh, what was that experience like? The what? To be around Bruce, uh, uh, Pat, and, and Vince uh, and, and you know, at, the, at the house in Greenwich. That was where they did things. And, and what was that experience like to be a part of that for uh, that brief period of time? Well, Vince would do all of his creative work yeah. in his uh, dining room table. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pat and Bruce and I would come. And uh, I really did not participate very much in the creative because yeah. I was trying to learn. Uh, you know, they have the merchandise building the warehouse is huge yeah, yeah. And i had to get a crash course on how that worked the tv station the studios uh the finances the treasurer the the booking of the buildings and the arenas the scheduling jj Dillon's interaction with all the talent yeah it was, you know, my plate was more than full, and sometime I'd show up and be kind of rum dumb. But anyway, Pat, <clears throat> Vince is, Vince is the boss. Yeah. And, and doesn't, he'll ask for suggestions, but he really don't want any. Mm. And so, you know, the the things that I felt that were critical, I would talk to him about. He had the Lex Express campaign going when I first got there, and yeah. nobody would show up. And so, you know, I expressed myself. I said, Vince, Lex is a great guy. Looks like a million dollars. But he lacks the charisma to carry the banner for the WWF. Yeah. Who would you use? Well, I know you're not going to like this, but you have had giants, and giants I love. I love Andre the Giant. I love Plowboy Frazier that we have. 
I, I like big men, but if I were going to name somebody, I'd take Bret Hart. He's got a yeah. he's got a great presence. Well, Vince went along with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved to watch personally Sean and Marty Jannetty. Mm-hmm. And so I suggested that he put the tag belts on two little shrimps, yeah. <laughs> as he called them, yeah. in Madison Square Garden. And it, I'm sure to this day, it's the biggest pop the garden ever had. So, if anybody wants to go back and trace history, uh, the introduction of smaller talent went from 1994 forward. Yeah. Well, and Brett, Brett, uh, you know, that was a great decision, too. That was a great time for the business of them trying to of trying to come back and, and, and succeeding eventually. But he came at a time when they definitely needed him. And it was a great decision at the time. Yeah. People, yeah, people yeah. want to check the numbers. I mean, it's, it's well, the way, I mean, uh, you, the way it you, went. You know, compare Sean yeah. to, and I, I love Scott Hall. I mean, he and I are really close to this day. Uh-huh. But Sean is like a shrimp. Compared to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and all those big Kevin Nash, big, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, they had the the deal where Kevin Nash was Sean's uh, bodyguard. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you know that showed the contrast in size. So I I think that I had that's an area I had creative influence. Most of my influence was business related. Yeah. But I'm uh, sure I, you, you thought it was a blessing when uh, Vince did get exonerated and you didn't have to take over. <laughs> oh take yeah. I would, <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I was drinking three or four bottles of wine at night, <laughs> every night. Uh, but uh, I, I, I kept you a while, but um, I, you've really had, uh, these these close encounters, I guess, we got with with the superstars that uh, you know have gone on to in the stratosphere of the, in the history of professional wrestling. But you saw many of them before they anybody even knew their names. And uh, you know, uh, one that, that certainly stands out. You you saw uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson, who eventually, of course, we know became the the mega star he is now, The Rock. But uh, back then, you saw him when he was uh, you know Rocky Johnson's kid. Yeah. Rocky and I were really, really close. He was my first black champion. Mm -hmm. And Rocky and I still talk to this day. He's a a wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. And you can tell somebody that has had the financial success of Dwayne Johnson and is still humble and you never hear anything ugly about him, you know that his parents did a lot of parenting. And Rocky and Peter's wife did a, Peter's daughter, mm-hmm. did a uh, incredible job. 
Yeah, and and um, we mentioned before about finding and becoming your your own unique person. That was always in Dwayne, and and uh, it was when he found it and when he trusted it when he became this uh, incredible star in yeah, the ring. Well, and you know the same is true with Sting and Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan and Jerry yeah. Lawler and yeah. all of them. I, my contribution was not in making them superstars, but in making them believe in themselves and to portray themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the big secrets of the business. Well, and and, yeah. And and another one, and you, uh, someone like Hulk Hogan, who you saw early on and, and you made a statement, uh, that at the time when you saw him, he hadn't, decided that he was a professional wrestler i think as you put it but it, i think it's more that he hadn't found uh himself and who he was in the in the charisma and, and recognized what he had uh to be that unique person who you know certainly has got to be among the absolute biggest um, personalities in the in the history of professional wrestling yes louis Tillette called me one day and he said i've got a big blonde bass player in a band <laughs> and he said uh and you know louis was trying to flatter me he said you can turn this raw piece of clay into a superstar if you'll just try i said well where is he in his training he said he has difficulty walking and chewing bubble gum at the same time uh-huh. I said, oh, Louie, what, what do you know? Just let him come up there if you have to send him right back to Florida. Uh-huh. So my wife and I were in the kitchen and you could see the street in front of our house. And he pulled out and uncalled out of that car, the giant that he was and long blonde hair. And uh-huh. I said, well, Louie was right. I'm going to try to do something. Uh, And I I took him, he really was uncoordinated, couldn't wrestle at all. uh, I took it on myself to take him to Tupelo, Mississippi, where my father-in-law had a ring set up permanently. uh And, you know, he's so big and I'm relatively small. I was probably 220 at the time that I thought he's going to kill me. We we figured out the big leg drop that he used his whole career. Well, believe it or not, to not hurt your opponent takes a lot of timing of where your butt lands and where your leg lands and where the face is in the crook where the knee bends. Yeah, right. Well, it hurts. Yeah. Well, that changed. I'm glad <laughs> he yeah, learned how to do it. <laughs> he, he ended up breaking every record there is to break. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a couple of others, and I, we could talk about this all day. But um, I know that uh, Randy Savage, and he, he, Randy is somebody who was really special to me. I got to work with him quite a bit, and uh, I don't know if there's anybody who sacrificed more in the ring and 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 for the business than Randy. And I know that. Uh, that you had a, a really great relationship with him too. Yes, yes. I 
one of the guys that I more than like. I really loved Randy. Yeah. I loved the character mm-hmm. of Randy yeah. Savage. He, uh, they ran against us. Um, my course of action was to not mention them and not let any of our talent mention them. Mm-hmm. So when they decided to fold up, uh, he called me and said, I'm going to throw in the towel. And I just want to tell you that you kicked my butt in the most gentlemanly fashion. I wish you had have been on that AWS. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I said, well, Randy, why don't you come to work for me? You've knocked Lawler and Dundee for a year. The fans yeah. think that you were building up to an angle. Let's cash in on it. Uh-huh. And he came to work and the rest is history. They sold yeah. out everywhere. And then when, uh, Vince called him, you know, Randy Savage is the only wrestler that Vince called and Vince's style would say, I need you tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And Randy Savage said, well, if you can't allow me two weeks notice, then I'm not interested in coming. Uh, I have a friendship with Jerry that I, I wouldn't break for any opportunity. And you know, that speaks volumes about the character of a man mm-hmm. that he was willing to pass up going to the WWE to keep his word. Yeah. And he's the only one who ever did that. Only one. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. I, I miss him to this day. I had a home in Santa Bell Island yeah. and whenever I'd go down or come back, I'd go to, there, St. Pete, St. Pete Beach or Indian Rocks, uh, one of those. I can't remember now. I'd go over and we'd set up on his balcony that overlooked the ocean and uh, laugh about things that happen. Uh, we every time he would want to me to retell the story of him at Madison Square Garden. Vince thought he was going to try to kill him. And uh, I ran down the hall and grabbed Randy and pushed him in the first room that was available. And little Richard was in there. And I, I know he wet his pants. <laughs> <laughs> he, thought, he thought this guy is crazy. Uh, so anyway, it, you know, we'd have big laughs uh, and conversations and, why do you think it ended so badly uh, with him in the WWE? And it never seemed as though it ever was fixed, and, 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 and it wasn't. Well, Randy believes that if you give your word, mm-hmm. you, uh, you, live by you, it. you die keeping it. Yeah. And Vince had Randy move to Stanford. Yeah. And he was going to put him on the creative team. And then Vince had second thoughts because Randy can be very volatile and Mm. the character that he has on TV sometime will come out in, in his real life. Yeah. He lived it. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) so Vince changed his mind and instead of telling Randy, it didn't work out. Here's the money to leave. He kept telling him 
lighter, 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 lighter. Uh. And uh, Randy just went nuts at Madison Square Garden one night. Oh, boy. Yeah. That, that um, was the end of him up there. Yeah, uh, I'm. I, I mentioned it. I'm also a big fan of of your son Jeff, and uh, I, we don't have a lot of time to cover uh, him. But uh, he was quite an athlete, and it could have been a basketball player if uh, you know he didn't decide he just didn't want to do it anymore. But um, were you proud of him early on when when he uh, decided to get into the business and found success, or did you would you have preferred that he didn't get into the business? Well. You know, my father left when I was three. Yeah. So my parenting was kind of on the fly. And mm-hmm. I believed that you could give your children your opinion, but don't try to enforce or live your life through them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, was I disappointed? Absolutely. Uh, Jeff only got to play his senior year because of my divorce from his mother. and She objected to him when he came to live with me, and so he was rudely ineligible, and so he only got to play his senior year. And the big schools were hesitant, and several of them told him, well, go to a small school. So he went to Aquinas Junior College and started as a freshman and Vanderbilt came to a couple of his ball games, recruiters and and his coach. Jeff came to me one day and said, I'm through with basketball. The coaches know the guys are smoking weed on the bus to the trips and they don't care about winning. They just are here. I want out, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to play anymore. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'd like to break in the wrestling business. I said, well, I think that you would be a lot better off getting your education in the event you don't make it in the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'll know pretty quick, and you'll know quicker if I'm going to make it. (laughs) And I can go back to school then, but I just want to take a year off. Well, he took a year off and never went back. Rest is history. Yeah. And and, uh, you guys uh, were estranged for a while with the the, uh, business, but everything's good now. I mean, it was 2015, I think, and, and... how 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 great is that relationship now? To, uh, it, to very have your son in your life. Here's yeah. here's the thing: we don't spend a whole lot of time together because I put the condition because the wrestling business is what caused the breach in our family. Yeah, and so I told him, "Don't ever ask me about the wrestling business or what I'm doing, and I'll never ask you." Let's pretend that you work in a beer brewery and I work in a whiskey distillery. Yeah. And and we don't know anything about the wrestling business. So we have stuck to that. Well, 
He's with the WWE now and traveling seven days a week. Uh, There's very little for us to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's his whole life now. But I'm glad when you do talk, I'm sure it's great. Jerry, Jared, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could have uh, gone on for a few more hours. You have so many great stories to tell. I hope we can do it again sometime. And and I hope we actually get to meet in person. That'd be great. Yes, I do too, Sean. And I'm I'm sorry I missed your illustrious career, but uh, maybe, maybe, who knows what tomorrow brings. That's exactly right. We're still in the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, folks, uh, if you're like me, imagine that uh, you had no idea how much Jerry Jarrett was a part of a number of innovations that changed professional wrestling forever. It's true. Also, that he was so influential in the business and just how close he was with Vince McMahon, a mentor, and uh, almost became a big part of that business. Uh, A great conversation with Jerry Jarrett. Thank you for coming on. You know. All right. As I mentioned, I've got some changes to tell you about coming to Primetime with Sean Mooney's uh, Patreon membership. Now, first up, we are adding a new tier uh, to membership. It is called the Superstars. I love that. The price of that tier is, listen to this, $4.99. That's right, $4.99. And with that, you will, of course, help support the program. And you will also get the PTSM podcast early and ad-free every single week. As a result, uh, though we are eliminating the prime timers tier, it will no longer exist. Okay, so let me explain here. Now, we will still have the Moonies tier. That tier will include the Ask Mooney Anything segment, the Q&As that uh, I love so much. But uh, they're now going to be videos. And what we're going to do is we will let you know when we're about to do one, and then you will submit your questions. And I will not only answer your questions, I will also give you a big shout-out for having such an awesome question. Yes. Also, the Moonies tier will include my favorite segment, uh, bonus guest answers to questions from our patrons every single episode. That is really is one of my favorite segments because we get so much great information. And uh, can you believe it? You guys come up with questions I never thought of, and we always get great answers. You will also still get to vote to choose each guest every week. Uh, we will have more live watch-alongs. But listen to this. We're also adding one video shout-out every six months. Now, have you ever seen these uh, celebrities do them? And, uh, so, you know, they get their phones and they do a personal message to somebody. Well, I'm going to do uh, one of those for you uh, every six months. So let's say you can. Uh, it could be for your birthday. It can be for someone else's birthday. It can be a congratulations to a relative or a friend. It's up to you. Whatever you want to do, I will do whatever you want as long as I don't get arrested. Okay? That's the deal. And I'm also, what am I doing? I'm adding all this stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm also going to be adding a weekly news segment uh, that, uh, where we're going to discuss the biggest headlines in professional wrestling that week and news about legends you have followed uh, from the 80s and beyond who are very busy these days. Uh, it won't be the same as the event center because I still want to do those videos that you guys submit. But uh, it is going to be a weekly news segment. Uh, what am I, crazy? Oh, come on. What? Uh, all right, all right, like... Now, our LOW members are going to get all those great perks, all of those, but they're also going to get the uh, one podcast, the one-on-one with me uh, after six months. We get to do a podcast together, which we will post on our Patreon page, 
And uh, after one year as a member of the Legion of Who, you will also get a one-on-one watch-along with me that we will record and post on the Patreon page. And there is more. You also get a t-shirt of your choice from our fine PTSM collection. Ha, come on. How, How much better can it get? So, Listen up, all of you prime timers out there. If you want to have all the aforementioned perks, you will need to upgrade to either a Mooney or a Legion of Who member by September 1st. Otherwise, you will become a superstar, which is great, but I would love to have you become either a Mooney or a member of the Legion of Who. So, if you haven't joined us yet, why haven't you? It's so easy. Uh, You can get all of those perks I just mentioned, become a Mooney or a Legion of Who. Uh, We'd love to have you. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney. That's patreon.com slash primetimemooney. And uh, come along for the ride, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, as I said, we'd love to have you uh, along with us. Okay. Now, I told you there was another announcement that I had uh, to tell you about. And it is a, it's, a, it's a good one. Now, I, you know, I've been telling you that I've been doing this other podcast that you all inspired, truly. It's uh, called Upside of 40. And I know a lot of our listeners started watching wrestling as kids back in the 80s. That means at this point you are over 40 or you're pretty darn close. Isn't it? It's hard to believe. Uh, well, this podcast is just for you, uh, men of a certain age, as I like to say. Uh, advice, information, and inspiration, all for men over 40 and beyond. And we cover everything from relationships, sex, health, fitness, even how to grill a great steak. So, you know, uh, we release these uh, vault episodes every week on PTSM. Uh, Well, I thought we'd try something different this week and put one of the new episodes of Upside of 40 up so that you can get a chance to listen to it. And I hope you will. And then let me know what you think. I'd love to get your feedback. So uh, check it out this Saturday. We're going to drop it uh, right here on PTSM. And after you listen, I hope you will subscribe and then you will add it to your weekly list of must-listen-to podcasts. And then, of course, email me and let me know what you think at primetimemooney at gmail.com. All right. I'm exhausted, man. I need a nap or something. A lot of information there, but uh, I hope you're going to... A lot of exciting things happen here on PTSM, and I hope you're going to join us. Another great episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney on the way next week. Who will it be? I can't wait to find out who from our Patreon members who get to choose our guest every single episode. So thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out.